Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined today by J.J. Cooper. We're bringing J.J. on because up at BaseballAmerica.com right now, there's three stories about the Atlantic League and all the new rules changes put in place, including automated ball strike system uh, called by computers, not umpires. A couple of other rules like no more pickoffs. Bases are a little bit larger. Uh, J.J. was out and watched a couple games or uh, over in the Atlantic League recently and kind of saw everything, how it's all really playing, not just on paper, but in reality, and got a feel for you know what's feasible to be put into Major League Baseball, potentially. JJ, thank you so much for joining us. What's just kind of your overall thoughts on, on everything you saw and, and how realistic it is we start seeing some of these in Major League Baseball anytime in the near future? What stood out probably the most to me was how normal most all of it seemed, um, which I may sound like a weird answer, but I kind of went into it. I I wanted to kind of try to approach it in some ways with the eyes of a fan. And I, there was a lot of these rules changes that if you're a fan and you aren't play, paying absolute locked in rock, you know, like laser focused attention, you might not even notice that it's going on. Um, you know, the, the robo umps, the automated ball strikes, the reality of it is, is that at least at high point where I was, and I've heard, you know, through reporting that there are some other ballparks in the league where it takes a little longer, but there, the signal was getting to the umpire quickly enough that you didn't really, you, you struggled to tell whether the umpire was calling the balls and strikes, you know, making the decision and calling them, or was getting fed the uh, balls and strikes in his earpiece and was just kind of relaying that because, there wasn't a noticeable pause. It wasn't something where the ball, you know, hits the mitt, one count, two count, strike. It was, it fit within the regular flow of what we're expecting. The bigger bases, I mean, uh, again, you may, maybe if you really pay attention, you notice them, but most fans aren't going to notice that the base is a little bit bigger. Um, the the pickoffs, you, you would probably notice if you're paying attention, you have to step off the rubber before you make a pickoff throw. So the lefty, you know, who's making the, uh, the, the, the pickoff where he hangs, on his, he hangs on his balance point and then, okay, is he going home? Is he, you know, is he throwing over? That has completely gone away with this. If he starts to lift his leg, the base runner can take off, you know, all that. But again, if you're a casual fan just watching the game, you're probably not going to notice that. Really, most all of these changes. Now, you, you know, if you're a casual fan, you may wonder why the pitching coach isn't coming out to try to settle down the pitcher, but you probably don't think a whole lot about it in this league right now. The rule is, is that you can't – there are no mound meetings. The only meetings that are allowed is for uh, changing of signs, which is only allowed to be the catcher and the pitcher. And in that case, the umpire is right there to make sure that all they talk about is changing the sign. So – it's a lot of significant rules changes, but the simple fact is, is that most of those kind of are, are almost as a, as a fan going on behind the scene. Now, I'm not saying that going on behind the scenes if you're a player, because these make some kind of significant differences. But it, what really did strike me was this was as, uh, about as, as significant a amount of rules changes as I've ever seen in a professional game. 
and you could kind of cruise along for several innings barely noticing it. The robo-umps are, are probably the biggest flashpoint in this discussion. And just to clarify, uh, it's not literally robots calling balls and strikes. Uh, it's track man tracking whether the ball uh, was a strike or not, and then relaying a signal to the umpire, the human umpire behind the plate. The umpire makes his ball strike determination based on the signal he receives or not. With that, you mentioned in one of your articles that while you just mentioned you didn't see a lot of lag time, the strike zone that the computer's calling is very different than the strike zone we see umps call. Uh, particularly, you saw a little bit of it uh, high to low, whereas pitchers who work more east to west got squeezed a little bit more. Just for you, with the strike zone differences, did you see a lot of confusion among batters, pitchers, catchers? What were the biggest things you saw there? The, the, the batters, pitchers, and catchers are all kind of getting a little bit used to it, but at the same time, there is a lot of muscle memory that's kind of being kind of overwritten there. The, the current strike zone, and I, I use the words current because I, one of the pieces mentioned, you can adjust the strike zone whatever way you want to when you're talking about a robot uh, computerized strike zone. You can, you can make it wider, you can make it taller, it's whatever you want to do, but the strike zone as it's currently programmed is designed to be, I would say, uh, the best way I can define it is, is is relatively close to the rulebook definition of the strike zone. And the simple fact is, is even with umpire, you know, umpires getting reports on, on their, ball, their ball strikes calls and what percentage were correct and all that, the strike zone as called in the major leagues is not the definition of the rule book strike zone. It, it doesn't have, it doesn't go that high and it's a little bit more of an oval. Well, this is closer to a true rule book strike zone that this strike zone as it currently stands. 3-0, same strike zone as 0-2, which is not true in the majors. Um, if a catcher sets up inside to try to, you know, get a fastball in on a guy, and that pitch runs the other way, and he has to dive all the way across, you know, and kind of stab at the ball and, and catch it, you know, with his glove flying out of the zone. In the majors, that's probably going to be called a ball, whether it costs across the strike zone or not. With the uh, computerized strike zone, that's a strike. I mean, it doesn't care what the catcher's doing to the ball. So there are a lot of differences with that. It is the, the way it is currently called in the Atlantic League, there's kind of a Everyone I talked to kind of agreed that if you can throw a high fastball, especially if you have a fastball with some, some run, you know, some life in the top of the zone, you're going to love this zone, the strike zone. And if you're a guy who kind of lives on nibbling and especially kind of sets up a guy in or then, and then kind of counts on getting that extra inch after you've demonstrated that you can hit the mitt, you don't get that extra inch and it's a lot tougher for those guys. And if they just took the strike zone as it currently is being used in the Atlantic league and tried to move that to the, to the major leagues, there would be some screaming. I can promise you that because there are absolutely pitchers who would have to figure out an entirely different way to pitch with almost, you know, to, to pitch to this new computerized strike zone. But the point that I, want to emphasize that that is is that's if they call it the way that if they design the strikes on the way it is currently designed and i do think that the important part of this is is you would have to figure out and really ideally it would be mlb and the players association come together 
and figure out what is the best strike zone that you want this computerized strike zone to, <laughs> to be in the major leagues. And if that means that you actually want it to have, you know, to be a little bit more of a side to side strike zone, you can program that. You just have to accept that you're programming a strike zone that maybe stretches a little bit beyond the, uh, the, the actual, you know, edge of the plate. Cause you can do that. The other thing that stood out with this though, is, is that this also is not something <laughs> as it currently stands that is going to mean less umpires either. You noted, you know, they're getting the signal in their earpiece. Well, on every pitch, they have to be prepared. They're going to hear one of three things in their earpiece, ball, strike, or no, you know, no read. Now, even if they hear, if they hear ball and the batter swung, it's their job to call it strike. It's not looking to judge whether they, whether the batter swung or not. If it says strike in their earpiece, but, it was a breaking ball that hit the dirt, you know, and you know, hit the plate, or it was a breaking ball that theoretically can even like one that hit in front of the plate bounced back up into the strike zone. It's the umpire's job to call a ball. So they, they are having to make a decision or be ready to make a decision on any play, whether it's called ball or strike in the airpiece or not. And there are going to still be pitches where it says no read, and when it does that, it is the umpire's job to make a call on that. So the umpire still has to be locked in on every pitch. It's just that if the technology is working the way it should, 90, you know, well, let's say 75% of the time, he's just relaying what it says. Again, if a batter swings, fouls the ball off, batter swings, misses, the umpire is still having to make those determinations, you know, whether whatever the uh, earpiece is telling him. Doesn't matter. That actually kind of leads into my next question. With every technology, there's going to be glitches, there's going to be errors. How often did you see, or from at least from this fan standpoint, could you see, hey, a glitch just took place? I mean, what, what kind of sense did you get for how often that happens? Oh, it, it's happening a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll put it this way. It's happening enough that they've had to invent rules to deal with it happening because you do not want it. It's I think rightfully it's it's viewed as unfair for one team to spend a half inning using robo umps and then in the other half inning it's just a, a human ump. So, I, in in one of the two games I was at, the earpiece was uh, not working properly, um, and this is <laughs> let me explain. I was there two and a half weeks, I guess, after this was rolled out, and. At that point, they were already on uh, what could almost be defined as, as maybe version 3.0 of this. They originally had an idea to use, you know, radio headsets for it, and then they found there was FCC frequency problems. And then they were going to use AirPods, but the problem they were having with the AirPods is, is that if an umpire runs down to first base to, uh, to try to, you know, part of his duty used to swing, you know, as a, and with a rotation, with a rotation, sometimes the AirPods would disconnect. And so when that happens, you, would, you know, it'd take a while to connect them back. And eventually version 3.0 that I saw was kind of, I would describe it as a secret service type earpiece. You know, it was a wired earpiece that goes into a, uh, that, that basically is connected to an iPod in the umpire's pocket. And that iPod is connected 
on a dedicated, you know, just a Wi-Fi network that is only for that iPod and then for the computer that is running the TrackMan software that's doing the balls and strikes. And so the idea is, is that that computer sends automatically a signal. But even with all that, so like the second game I'm at, the first inning, the earpiece is not working properly. So the umpire just pulls, you know, pulls it out and starts the game because he's not going to wait to get it fixed. He just starts the game calling balls and strikes like, like umpires have done for 150 years. And so that's what happens at the end of the top of the first. The TrackMan operator comes out, switches out his earpiece. It gets it working. But that, again, that doesn't mean at that point that he put it in. It meant that he then called the bottom half of the first the same way so that each team would have the equivalent, you know, the same, uh, the same playing field. And then at the start of the second, boom, he's back to using the, uh, the, the computer and he uses it for the rest of the game. So we've seen that a lot. Um, there, you know, again, they've established these rules. The rule now is, is that if there are two batters in one half of an inning who it's not working for, then you, you stop using it for the bottom half of the inning as well, which again, you can say is not even perfectly fair because theoretically one team could get it for two batters. One team could get it for, you know, for six. Um, it's funny. You'll see when there's a, a, a close call for say, especially for strike three, you could see hitters, uh, in fact, one of them, uh, you know, actually gestured. He was talking to the umpire as he walked off, and he pointed at his ear, basically uh, effectively asking the question, hey, am I arguing with you, or was that the computer that called it? And the, you know, the umpire basically told him that was the computer call. Okay, well, I'm not going to argue with you because all you're doing is relaying the call. And so the goal, I would say – the expectation of this is to get this to 99% reliability. They're not there yet. That's why it's, you know, it's still a little ways away. But now, again, 99% reliability would mean that there's a couple of calls a game, two or three calls a game, that where it screws up. But that's, again, why you have the human umpires, uh, you know, to step into those cases. And if you are being fair about this, being charitable about this, I think that the, if the goal is is that human umpires are calling balls and strikes at 99% reliability, I think we'd all be happy with that. Would, would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Anytime you're getting as close to perfect as possible, that's the goal in, in any endeavor, especially when it comes to uh, calling balls and strikes. I know I've talked about this a little bit. There has been a sense, at least just from the games I've been at and I've watched that, really calling high to low. There have been a lot of misses, I feel like, over the last two years especially. I've noticed it. Uh, and this, you know, system really kind of rewards high to low, maybe more than uh, more than real umpires do, or I should say, human umpires do. And with that, one of the most impactful lines or impactful anecdotes I thought from your stories was that after the first couple of days, they actually did adjust the strike zone. They lowered it because a lot of the high strikes were found to be unhittable. So they actually lowered the strike mm -hmm. zone, brought it back down below the breastbone. So there was some flexibility here. It wasn't a dictatorial, hey, this is it, deal with it. They were willing to work with the players a little bit to get it to be better for everybody. Right. And, and I think, that, again, there's a – we could do a whole podcast just talking about the strike zone, you know, because, I mean, there are – when you talk about bugs with it, there are some other bugs. So as it stands right now – 
the way that they are programming strike zones is anyone in the Atlantic League, and the Atlantic League has a lot of players who played the majors. If you're a hitter who has played in the majors, they are basing your strike zone off the data they have from your time in the majors. So, which is not perfect because do note the strike zone as it is defined is supposed to be to the, you know, to the midpoint, uh, essentially on your chest between shoulders and belt based on your, uh, where you are at swing at, you know, during a normal swing. Well, if you've got a hitter and there are some of these guys in the Atlantic League, if you've got a hitter who five years ago was in the majors or three years ago was in the majors and he had a very upright stance when he was in the majors. And so when he, again, not just in his stance, but when his swing, he was really tall in his swing and he has since adjusted and is now more compact, more bent over in his swing. It's still using the old strike zone. So there are some guys who have some, really tall strike zones. The flip side of that is, is that if you were a guy who was in the majors and had a really compact strike zone, you know, because of a, a, a kind of, you were, you were crouched over in your swing and now you're upright. Well, congratulations. You still are getting to use the strike zone of your Ricky Henderson style stance from before. And so, okay, that's a flaw that they understand. Everyone knows is a problem of them doing it this year in the Atlantic league. But, okay, let's say you didn't play in the majors. Well, then it is based off of your height. They're going to draw an average strike zone for a player your height, which, by the way, every time in the past for baseball in in perpetuity, to to list yourself as maybe an inch or two taller than you are, you know, so-and-so is actually not six foot. They're actually more like five nine. Well, with this, if you do that, you have a six-footer strike zone, not a five-foot-nine strike zone. So we might, if that was going to be the, the rule of the way you did this, you know, further on, there would be reason to, you would have plenty of incentive to, for one, you would actually need to measure players accurately every year. And for two, there would be a reason to have them, you know, be very truthful in their heights. But that's a big part of this. Like, okay, if this was going to be the system going forward, if you were going to have computerized strike zones, do you want to base it individually off of each person's stance? And then you need to adjust it anytime they change their stance. Or do you want to say, no, we're just going to say, if you're six foot six, you're going to have a six foot six strike zone. If you're five foot eight, you're going to have a five foot eight strike zone. Or if you want to get crazy about it, I mean, but you could do this. You could say, Major League Baseball and the MLBPA, you know, could conceivably say, nope, we're just going to have a strike zone. You know, this is going to be, I don't care if you're six foot 10, I don't care if you're five foot four, this is going to be the strike zone. It's going to be the same strike zone for everybody. And you could do it that way. I mean, theoretically, again, if you wanted to, if you say, you know what, we want to encourage strikes on the outer half, you could say, that we're going to draw the strike zone to have an extra inch or an extra half inch or an extra two inches on the outer half of the plate for both right-handers and you know, hitters and left-handed hitters. You can do whatever you want with this. But the key point of this is, is you know, again, and they've got a lot of work through with this if they're going to take this further, is you have to at some point, some, there's going to be some very interesting discussions of, okay, 
we've had these uh, human umpires have been making adjustments and doing making the best they can of it for a very long time. If you're going to program this in, you're going to have to make some really interesting decisions about what you want the strike zone to be. Yeah, and the strike zone, as you mentioned, is definitely the most uh, interesting part of the experience they're putting into place in the Atlantic League. And like you said, it's not ready yet, but you could see it maybe one day getting there, but it's going to take some time. The other move, uh, the other change, I should say, that I found most interesting was the idea of stealing first. Basically, if the ball gets by the catcher, any point in the count, not just with two strikes, the batter can take off and quote-unquote steal first base. Did you see that take place at any actual point in the games you were at? No. Um, I saw there be opportunities, but <laughs> there are a couple of things with this. I, I don't think that that one's going to have, I don't think that one's going to really go anywhere, but I don't think, especially even if it did, it's going to have a whole lot of impact because a couple of things. One, if you are at a park with a pretty small area behind home plate, you're taking a big risk. You know, unless the ball really gets away, you are taking a significant risk that you could get thrown out on a pitch where generally that's going to be a ball. And so, uh, you know, you're, you're taking the, the bat out of your hands to get to first base. But two, beyond that, there are a whole lot of hitters who they don't want to take the bat out of their hands. They, they want to get a chance to swing. And so you don't – there have been very few situations where that's actually uh, occurred, where the guy has stolen first base in the Atlantic League. I mean, it's – it's notable enough that when it happens, you, you kind of see someone in the Atlantic League usually mention it because it's not happening very often. The idea behind it was, as it stands right now, pitchers have a reason not to bury their best you know, slider in the dirt with two strikes. Because if they do so, and it kicks away, yeah, even if you got the guy to swing at it, he may still reach first base. You know, with, with, and again, we're generally talking here, let's talk about the situation with there's no one on. But as it stands right now, if you're, you know, if you're up 0-1 or, you know, and, and you want to throw a pitch in the dirt, there's really no downside if no one's on of throwing something basically completely out of zone if you've got an aggressive hitter and see if they'll chase at it. And if it means that a ball gets away and goes to the backstop, well, who cares? And the idea with this is, is that this would put something in the back of the pitcher's head. You know what? If I'm going to try to bury that pitch – they could reach first base. Now, again, some of these ideas are ones that I think are going to end up being barely, you know, we're, we're barely going to remember them. I think this may be one of them just because for one, it's not making a significant impact, but for two, that's probably a, a step too far. I mean, for one, how, I mean, just put it this way, how many two strike, you know, swinging third strikes, the ball gets away, do you, you know, where the guy actually successfully reaches first? How many times do you see that in the season? Very, I, I, I don't very think, few. <laughs> I, I, I saw, a, I saw in my, a game I was at last night, I saw a ball get away with two strikes, two outs, and then the runner decided to run, and the catcher was jogging to the, you know, to, into the dugout, and then about halfway down to first base, the runner kind of bailed out on running just about the time that the catcher realized it and threw to first and got him out and all. You know, it's just not something that you see very you know, very often. And I don't think I, I could say in the Atlantic League so far, that rule change has not really done much of anything. A lot of the other rule changes are designed at increasing the pace of play. Uh, you mentioned that 
all mound meetings are banned except for uh, discussing an injury and an umpire is there to supervise the conversation to make sure nothing else is discussed. Uh, they've shortened uh, between inning breaks uh, to one minute, 45 seconds. Uh, makes it uh, the catcher sometimes has to get his gear on a little quicker than he might like. But for the most part, that's a rule I think a lot of people would be interested in seeing take place. Limiting pickoffs as well. Changing the rules for what kind of pickoff is allowed. Were the games you saw shorter? I mean, did it actually have a meaningful effect? Well, I mean, let's say let's equate Atlantic League to AAA baseball. Um, and again, maybe that's not right this year. Fair to do this year because this year AAA baseball has a, uh, a happy fun ball that, uh, that seems to leave the park and the Atlantic League's not using that ball. But the Atlantic League has really been kind of uh, really emphasizing pace of play for more than a half a decade now, really. But all of that together... Yeah, an average Atlantic League game, nine inning games, about two is two hours forty five, two hours forty six minutes. An average PCL game, which is the worst case scenario this year, is averaging nine inning games, averaging about three hours and five minutes. Now the IL is closer. The IL is like I think two fifty one, two fifty two. But no, I mean they do they do move quicker. The interesting things with all of these things, you know, again, I, I the the no mound visits seems a little bit overboard you know there, there there are situations where you want to get everyone together but at the same time there's probably an in-between there you know which we've seen some experimentation with which you say you know what instead of it being zero visits we're going to say that each team pick a number they can have one they can have two they can have three a game so you know you you make it where the pitching coach is like, okay, this is a situation where I really need to get out there. But, you know, or I see a mechanical flaw that I can tell him really quickly and hopefully he can fix it. But it's worth me going out there. But that's very different from you as it currently stands for basically, you know, you just meet whenever you want. And uh, that, that would, you know, that there is probably a happy medium in between. I'm fascinated by the pickoff rule changes because I would say of all the changes that have been implemented, most everyone I talk to, you know, in the Atlantic League says that's the most significant one. The, the game changed pretty dramatically, even though these are not rosters that were planned to handle this. And really, you know, there, there are a couple of, of speedsters in the league. You know, if you're a Baseball America reader, you probably, you know, remember Rico Noel. If you are a hardcore Baseball America reader, you, you may, you know, remember Darian Sanford's name. But, you know, there's, there are a couple of guys like this who are the guys who in a normal year, in a normal league, are going to steal 50 bags. But there aren't many guys like that in the Atlantic League. And after that pickoff rule change, which was implemented at the midpoint of the season at the All-Star break, we've seen stolen bases basically come close to doubling. It was like 0.7 steals per team per game before the rule change. And now it's like 1.3, almost 1.4 steals per team per game. So that, that's a significant difference. If MLB with this rule change is trying to get uh, teams to run more, it's working. Um, it does also mean that when you have a really fast guy, and basically be standing on third not long afterwards, but I do think that this is one of those things, really what it comes down more than anything to is it would take time to adjust. If you implemented that rule in Major League Baseball tomorrow, again, 
it would dramatically change the game. It would anger a ton of people and you would have pitchers who would really be helpless because if you're a lefty who's a little slow to the plate, but you've always had a good pickoff move, you have a way to defeat base dealers in the major leagues and base major league baseball is risk averse. Now, if you can keep that success rate down to about 65, 70%, they're just not going to run. They're not going to run unless they are confident. They're going to probably steal bases at a close to 80% clip. The analytics kind of show that that's, that's very important if you're trying to win games. Well, the thing that would change with this is let's say though, that you said that they took this and they implemented this in the complex leagues. And then it, you know, every year it moved up. The next year it was all of rookie and short season ball. And the next year it was low A. And the next year it was high A. And the next year it was double A. And the next year it was triple A. And I saw this in one of my two games that I was, I want to say, I had a two-game sample size. I don't want to make any sweeping generalizations. If you have a pitcher who's varying his, you know, his time, you know, to, you know, his handbrake and, you know, when he goes home, and is 1 1 1 2, 1.1, 1.2 seconds to the plate, has a slide step, things like that. Guys aren't running off them generally because, you know, and, and this better than I do, you know, you, you still play. It, if, if a guy's quick to the plate and the catcher has a pretty good arm, even without a pickoff throw, it's, you know, you can limit a running game. And we saw some of this, you know, like, so there was a pitcher, you know, Michael Bowden was you know, getting a lot of one ones, one two to the plate. Yes, the Michael Bowden that you may remember, you know, he was pitching there and, and he was limiting the running game. Well, then a reliever comes in and that reliever was one seven to the plate. And I don't care, you know, if you can't throw over effectively and with this move, you really can't throw over very effectively. And you're one seven to the plate. Yes, you are putting a sign out that says, hey, run on me. But if pickoffs as they currently exist were taken out of the game and you have to step off the rubber in all cases before throwing, if that's the case, what would happen is pitchers would really work on being quick to the plate. And once you did that, if, if this rule stays in the Atlantic League for several more years, I bet you what you're going to find is, is that stolen base rate is going to drop because more pitchers are going to worry about slide steps. They're going to worry about varying, you know, how quickly they go home, you know, how long they hold the ball, all that. And you do all those things, you can still limit a running game. It would just be that you're doing it in a different way. And so I don't think it have as much of an impact in the long term. And from a pace of play, you could make the argument that if you cut back, you know, 75 or 80% of all pickoff throws, that's probably not a bad thing for the game. Now, again, I know that that makes me a heretic to many people hearing this. And I'm not saying that, you know, there aren't pickoff moves that are very vital parts of especially left-handers game. But I do think that that is a job that could be made if baseball wants to do it. I mean, what do you think? Certainly one that I think would have some appeal, at least to the casual fan, uh, because you're right. A lot of times there's times, especially late in game, sixth, seventh, eighth inning, where uh, it's a one-run game. The guy gets on and you just see the pitcher step off, look over there, maybe actually make one or two pickoff throws. And before you know it, you know, if they've thrown one pitch in about a minute, a minute 10, it definitely slows down the pace and elicits some groans. I think those in, uh, in the mound meetings in between pitches you see sometimes in uh, the postseason are the two things that really probably slow things down the most and make it kind of least entertaining from a casual fan perspective. And, and Major League Baseball needs their casual fans. You know, 
those of us who are hardcore fans were great, but there's got to be a significant casual fan base. As well, that. when you hold on, so that's well, let's unpack that though. When you say the for the hardcore fans, well, I'd say even for you know, again, I mean, you know, in defense, you know, like again, I want you know, like make the case against it if you if you feel that way. I would love to hear it. Like, I think like, if you're a purist, you, know, you could say, oh, it takes away from being able to control the run game. But look, you and I are both we we cover the sport for a living. We love this game, and that's why we do what we do. And I think you and I are both on the same page. Even we've had moments where, like, okay, seriously, come on now with whether oh, an excess I, I will. or an excess pickoff throw. So I do think there is some validity to, uh, while not eliminating those, like you said, maybe capping them at a lower number than they currently are now uh, well, with regard to mound visits and then pickoff throws. There obviously aren't any restrictions on it at the major league level, but it would be interesting to see if, uh, if it was feasible to put in what they're doing at the Atlantic League. I'd be at least open to the idea of it. Uh, the the thing I would say is is uh, the the biggest impact this would make would be more on the college side of the game because I have absolutely absolutely seen college games where it is just almost it is not just almost a rule it is a rule guy reaches pitcher has to throw over I don't care if the batter the base runner is standing on first base he still has to throw over. And a lot of times it's like, you know, again, that's being signaled for the dugout. And it might be throw over, throw over, throw over. Okay, now throw home. And, you know, again, like that's something where I understand where a purist can say that's, you know, that's wrong. It's been part of the game, all that. I do think, you know, I, the other interesting part of this is, is, again, if computerized umpiring comes in to play at other levels, the thing it's going to do is – all of a sudden, catcher framing, which has been very, very important, is going to become irrelevant. Now, at the same time, what would be looked for in catchers would change pretty dramatically because if that call that came with this rule change, then all of a sudden, catcher's arm becomes much more important again. Because, you know, if you're a consistent one nine and accurate to uh, you know on, on throws to second, you're going to do a whole lot of better job you know, limiting running games than a guy who's 2-1. And <laughs> there are guys who are 2-1 and there are guys who are 1-9. So, you know, again, it, it would just change the balance of the game a little bit, but I don't think it would change it as dramatically as, as you know, as, as maybe, you know, we might think it, you know, would. Now, again, if you threw in the, the two-strike rule, you know, or the, the stealing first rule, then you're going to make an emphasis that, that catchers really need to be good at blocking the ball. And you have managers in the Atlantic League who say, since that rule came in, one of the reasons it has not made as much impact as maybe one would think it would is because they've really made an emphasis on making sure that the uh, you know that their catchers does a really good job of not letting the ball get by them. So, you know, again, all of these things are things where the 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 best way I could put it, and it's maybe not a perfect analogy, but we've talked about this. You and I have talked about this, I think, multiple times before. You hear people who have never gone to a game with a pitch clock say how awful the idea of a pitch clock is for baseball because baseball is a game without a clock, although as, as Bill James, I think, wrote one time, you know, no, it used to have a clock. It was called the sun. But, um, but baseball is a game without a clock, and so there shouldn't be a clock, and, and pitch clocks are bad. Even though, I will note, in the rule book it says no one on pitcher should be pitching within 12 seconds of the last pitch, which, by the way, 
never happens. But um, been enforced, but, but it you and I both go to it is in the book. And next time an umpire enforced that, I think a pitcher's head might explode. I saw Pedro Baez has not thrown a legal pitch by that death. I saw it got enforced on, uh, I think it was Rafael Betancourt a few years back, but yes, it's very rare to see. Pedro Baez may not have thrown a, a legal pitch in his career, if, that, if that's the rule, you know, with, with no one's on. But, um, I, I just but, saw him pitch last night, and it actually wasn't terrible, but yes. But uh, we go to a lot of games, in my case, AAA, that has a pitch clock. And the best way I could describe it is, is that 99% of the time you forget that it's even there. Is that a fair, would you, would you make that, would you agree with me or disagree with them? I would completely agree. Having been to uh, more, more than I can count, I completely agree. And that's one of the changes that if you just hear about it, you may think that's a step too far, but I have talked to a lot of fans and I've asked the question, you know, what do you think about this? And the answer I generally get is, is I wasn't a big fan of it, but I've really noticed that you just don't really notice. And if that's the case, I do think a lot of these rules changes, I know they sound dramatic. Uh, You know, the intentional walk. I mean, there was all the talk about, you know, oh, the idea of not having to throw four pitches was going to make a massive change in the game. And I, I think basically people barely remember that that ever happened. I mean, again, it just has not made a significant impact. I don't, that does not mean that every rules change should just be greeted as, hey, this is a great idea. I'm not saying that at all. But I did really come away from two days. And again, it was just two games, but two games and watching some other games on, you know, on TV, on, well, not TV, on YouTube, and came away from watching, you know, a significant number of, of, U, of Atlantic League games going, you know, these are pretty seems like dramatic rules changes, but they're not changing the fabric of the game. Now, if I'm a player, maybe I'm a little bit more upset about it. If I'm a coach, maybe I'm a little bit more upset about it until you get used to it. But you know, especially as a fan, none of these things were things where I come away going, okay, well, that's just a, a bridge too far. I know I'm a little bit more open in some of these things. Some other people may think that no, I'm I'm crazy. I get that. Feel free to tell me that. Uh, JJCoop36 on Twitter. But, you know, but again, I, I just came away from it going, if this is the dramatic rule changes, now, again, I'm not talking about moving the mound back, but if these are the, quote, dramatic rules changes, they, they didn't feel that dramatic. I will say, you mentioned it didn't change the fabric of the game. Seeing, you know, what you've written about it and talked to some people about it, I think what's been interesting to me is while the fabric of the game might not change, some of the types of players might change. And you alluded to this. Uh, again, your story you wrote about pitchers and how the guys who work high to low might have more success than the guys who work in and out um, from a pitching standpoint with the automated strike zone. But you just hit on it with the catchers, and we have seen a proliferation of catchers who, to be completely frank, cannot hit. I mean, we're talking sub-200 averages, low on base percentages, and you know, you say there's pop on some of them. A lot of them really don't even have the pop. And in some cases, their arm isn't all that great either but they're really good at pitch framing. They're really good at receiving. And because of that, they get jobs. Um, you know, Jeff Mathis is kind of the, the poster boy for this. His average pop time is over 2.1. He has the worst average pop time of uh, semi-regular catchers in the major leagues. He's also been one of the worst hitters in major league history by any measure, but he continues to get jobs because he's so good defensively in terms of what he does. You know, and it's more just framing. He's, you know, blocking, catching, receiving, all of it. But all of a sudden, guys like that might be, you know, they might be less desired. And I do think there is a case that 
while it's obviously not great for those guys, and you never wish for anyone to lose their jobs, Major League Baseball does benefit from, hey, there are truly, you know, eight good hitters in a lineup. There's not an automatic out at the bottom of the lineup uh, beyond the pitching spot, pitcher spot in the National League. A lot of times the catcher spot has become an automatic out as well. I do think there's some value in saying, okay, all of a sudden now the framing's been removed, we can emphasize guys who have stronger arms, and also there's just less need for a guy who can do that at the expense of a good bat. I think there's an interesting potential there to bring some offense back to the catching position if this gets put in place. Yeah, I mean, again, understandably, the biggest the biggest group who should be absolutely positively against this is now again when you look at the MLBPA, they have their constituents. Well, their constituents are major league players. If I'm a major league catcher and my value is derived from my ability to frame and to you know to get borderline calls called strikes, I do not want this. This will absolutely positively negatively impact my bank account. And that is, that is completely an understandable reaction. The, the funny thing about this is, is that understandably we're all focused, you know, like most of this that is like, it's being done in the Atlantic league. Will this come to MLB? And one answer I kept getting in the Atlantic league was from people who understandably they don't have any hidden insight into this either about the plans of major league baseball. That said, I think it makes a logical sense, which is, is major league baseball would not spend the thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars that they did to install TrackMan at every single Atlantic league park to pay for TrackMan operators at every single Atlantic league park just to have this as like an experiment that they have no idea, no plan to do anything with. This is being done to work out the kinks. And if it goes well, clearly I think MLB at some point is going to want to take this to another level. But when you say where, is, where would computerized umpires have the biggest impact, it's not the majors. Those are the best umpires in the world. If you had computerized umpires in rookie ball, it would make a massive difference. You know, I was talking with a, uh, uh, you know, a minor league pitching coach this week, and he was talking about how the class A strike zone, if you took the major league strike zone and imagine it as a rectangle, and then you took it to low A, imagine flipping that. If it's a, a, a rectangle that's taller than it is wide in the majors, in Class A, it's wider than it is tall. That's the Class A strike zone. And then, I kind of suggested this, but he kind of agreed with me. Now imagine that that strike zone is always moving in and out. And whenever you, the ball crosses the plate, maybe it's a strike on that edge and maybe it's not. And it's all going to be based on the fact of whether it cost it at the time of the ball strikes a little wider or short, you know, narrower. Well, I say umps, nothing against them, but they're they're not going to throw them. They're not going to call as consistent a strike zone. Rookie ball umps are going to call it worse. College umpires are going to call it worse than that. And so, the biggest impact way down the road of potentially having a computerized strike zone is that you could be an A ball as a pitcher, and you would not get jobbed nearly as often, or as a hitter, 
you would get a much more consistent strike zone than you get right now because you are calling to a strike zone that remains consistent pitch after pitch where nothing against the umpires. They're learning the same way that you can't expect a class A hitter or a class A pitcher to execute as well as a major leaguer. But they're having to adjust to the fact that sometimes you get the pitch, the hitter set up perfectly, you locate that pitch, and the ump just misses it in class A. And that would be what would change if you took the computerized strike zone and spread it down through the monitors. I think there is some reason to uh, kind of hope that happens because you're right. I think especially at the lower levels, you know, I kind of have the joke, it's a ball for the umpires too. Uh, but there are certainly times where there needs to be better performance. And if this helps, it's, it's worth investing in. Um, JJ, just to kind of wrap up here, let's peer into the crystal ball five years from now. Which of these changes do you feel like is most likely to be in effect in Major League Baseball? Oh, that's easy. The big bases. I could find no one that I talked to who didn't like them. So, I mean, when I say big bases, I'll explain a little further. They are about, it, it's a, if I remember correctly off the top of my head, it's an 18-inch base as opposed to a 15-inch base. So it's just a little bit bigger all the way around. And the most important impact that that has is at first base where you've just given the first baseman more real estate to put his foot, and you've just given the base runner more real estate to put his foot on the base without getting you know, without spiking, without getting up in a collision with the first baseman. I, there does not seem to be any downside to the big bases. And I, I don't really know who would be the constituency that is opposed to bigger bases. You know, again, we're not talking about that they're turning them into trampolines or anything like that. They're slightly bigger. And, I, you know, every player I asked, every coach I asked, every official I asked, everyone said, yeah, that just seems like a, a great idea. And the, the key thing is, is with all these other ideas, you can see the pluses and minuses of them. Again, I think that there are some pluses to computerized strike zone. I understand there are some minuses to it as well. I think that there are pluses to the rules about pickoffs, but there are minuses as well. The mound meetings, all that. I couldn't get anyone to give me a minus, a drawback to the bigger bases. And so that's the one that I think of all of these I could see being adopted relatively quickly, really up and down throughout the majors, you know, the majors, minors, everywhere at every level, because I just don't see a whole lot of downside to it. Yeah. I remember asking a major league baseball spokesman when the rules came out, what the purpose was behind that. And they mentioned specifically giving the first baseman more room to operate so that there's less of a chance of getting spiked. But the other part of it was they really seemed to be trying to get it to be a more dynamic game. And they thought they would encourage base throws a little bit bigger bases a little less ground to cover, all of a sudden that bang-bang play, if the base is, you know, another inch closer to them, all of a sudden that out call become, they might be safe. So I thought that was an interesting development, and, and I do see the upside to it on both of those fronts. And, well, we will see if in five years those have been put in place, and I think we'll all be watching closely to see the development of the automated strike zone and just how trustworthy it becomes. Uh, JJ, thank you so, so much for joining us and kind of taking us through everything you saw. Uh, I highly, highly encourage everyone to go online, baseballamerica.com, uh, read all of JJ's pieces. Uh, they're really interesting, really insightful and uh, educational in seeing what uh, potentially the future of uh, baseball might look like. Uh, go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We'd love to hear from you and uh, we appreciate any and all feedback. For J.J. Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. This has been another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Mm -hmm.